Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Rapnolis. As a kid, I imagine I reacted to movies much the way that kids do today or kids did back then. I would get home and pretend I was in those movies. Certain movies, though, really captured my attention and kept me involved in that world for a little bit longer than others. Things like Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Goonies, and Ghostbusters. So when these movies would come out, I would want to see them as many times as possible. Then I would go home and would head to the basement where we had a workbench, and I would attempt to make gear similar to what was in the movie. Now, my tech background at that age wasn't so high, but I would try to find things that sort of looked similar to them, and I would tinker to try to make them as close as possible, and then I guess I hoped that the technology that would power them would just follow. And this was also the case with Ghostbusters. As soon as I saw it, I thought, wow, I am going to totally be a Ghostbuster. Maybe I wasn't the smartest kid in the world, but I had a lot of heart. And I went home and went to the basement and anything I could find that seemed technical I would put in a pile and then I would try to figure out, well, how do I make a proton pack? What does it look like? How do I tinker with it to make it do things? Most of these things ended in horrible failure, but that didn't stop me from continuing to do it, often long past when a movie would be out. In the case of Ghostbusters, it continued throughout the whole year. I would come home from playing with my friends, head to the basement. We had a stereo system down there. It was the old one that we had originally had in our living room in the 70s. I would put on whatever records I would have that would get me in the mood to do work. With the Ghostbusters, it was the Ghostbusters theme, which I would play just constantly while I tried to work on Ghostbusters equipment. I think maybe three months in, I discovered at a garage sale a bunch of haunted records, and they were basically ghost stories on vinyl. And I bought them for like 20 cents each and brought them home and started listening to them while I would work on my ghost equipment. And I got a pretty good trap down, basic square box I'd built, and the hinges sort of worked, and I got wheels on the bottom. That was my big commitment. The proton pack never really worked out as well, although I did have a box with a length of hose on it and a nozzle that I had found. I must have driven my family crazy because I remember one day being down there, maybe it was like 9 o'clock at night, probably right before when I would have to go to bed. And I was sitting there working, soldering stuff, trying to make things work, and listening to a scary album when suddenly the lights went out, and I heard the door slam on the basement. So there I am, sitting completely in the dark in the basement. The only light is sort of the blue of the stereo, which is actually in a hinged closed door, and I freak out. I start running across the basement, I trip over everything, knock things over, As it turns out, it was my sister. She had had enough of listening to that album through the floor and decided that if I was really a Ghostbuster, I wouldn't be afraid of the dark. She proved me completely wrong. On today's show, we're going to talk about the Ghostbusters. We're going to talk about the concept behind the movie. We'll talk about the plot and the characters. We'll talk about the success of the film. We'll talk about products that followed the Ghostbusters, the animated series, toys, etc., And although we won't go into depth on the sequels, those could be podcasts unto themselves, we will touch upon those sequels. We have an information-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show.
1982, the producers Ivan Reitman, Joe Medjuk, and Michael Gross were planning to make a film adaptation of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The author, Douglas Adams, had written three drafts for them, and they were actually looking at people to start casting in the role of Ford Prefect. Two people that were up for consideration were Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd. It was during this phase that Dan Aykroyd sent them an idea that would change their minds about making Hitchhiker's Guide and would set them on the roll to making Ghostbusters. It was a movie called Ghost Smashers. The concept was inspired by Aykroyd and I imagine his family's fascination with the paranormal. And it was conceived as a vehicle for him and John Belushi, who was a Saturday Night Live alum and regular collaborator with Aykroyd. The original story, as Aykroyd wrote it, was very different from what you actually saw in the film. In the early version of the script, the Ghostbusters traveled through time, space, and other dimensions, taking on immense ghosts. Think a whole world full of Stay Puft Marshmallow Man type ghosts. The Ghostbusters, or Ghost Smashers, were also a lot more sleek and more SWAT-like outfits and used wands, magic wands, instead of proton packs. According to Reitman, that film would have cost $300 million in 1984 dollars, which was way above anything that had ever been done before. But the idea to them was very appealing, so they brought in Harold Rimus to rewrite the script and bring it from the future back to modern times, which was the early 80s. Aykroyd, Rimus, and a couple other people sequestered themselves in a Martha's Vineyard bomb shelter in the late spring, early summer of 1982, and gave the script a complete overhaul. A lot of the premises from the original movie were completely scrapped, and a lot of the characters were rewritten. And a lot of this had to do with changes to who could be in the movie. John Belushi had passed away. So the character that he was supposed to play, Peter Venkman, was changed. The real Ghostbusters will return after these messages. This summer, coming to a supermarket near you, there's going to be a great new high C flavor with an outrageous food taste. And what are we going to call it? Ecto Cooler. High C Ecto Cooler. Slimer's new food drink. You've been warned. Each sold separately. Break out the new equipment! Ecto goggles down! It's Marshmallow Man! Ecto popper, pop him! Another ghost! My neutrona blast is ready! So's my water zapper! Ghost him! We ain't scared of <laughs> Ecto goggles with Ecto popper, neutrona blaster, and water zapper each sold separately. New from the real Ghostbusters! There's a cereal in the neighborhood. New Slimer ghost. Ghostbusters with the milk and juice and toast. A complete breakfast with the ghost. Ghostbusters! I told you it's glowing. It's gonna be a Ghostbuster cereal. The first cereal box that glows in the dark with four glow-in-the-dark Ghostbuster trading cards. You gotta have it. Ghostbusters! The first cereal box that glows in the dark. We now return to the real Ghostbusters. We'll talk a little bit about the characters of Ghostbusters. 
You had Bill Murray as Dr. Peter Venkman, and the Venkman role was originally written for John Belushi. But other people were also up for that role. Michael Keaton turned down the role. He would also turn down the role of Egon Spangler. And Chevy Chase turned down the role of Venkman. He said that the script that he saw wasn't the one he saw on the screen. The original one he said was much darker and much scarier and less funny. So maybe if he had seen the script that they had worked on, that he might have done it and we would have a completely different film. Dan Aykroyd played Dr. Raymond Stance. Harold Rimus, who at that point had no intention of acting, took the role of Dr. Egon Spengler. The director and producers had a really difficult time casting Egon and went to a whole bunch of people. Chevy Chase, Michael Keaton, Christopher Walken, John Lithgow, Christopher Lloyd, and even Jeff Goldblum were considered. But all of them kept looking to Rimus thinking, we have our Egon. Ramus accepted the role of Egon, and he credits it with revitalizing his acting career. Up until that point, he had kind of gotten off that and was concentrating more on his off-screen work, like writing and directing. The role of Winston Zedmore would go to Ernie Hudson, but the role was originally written with Eddie Murphy in mind. But Murphy declined to do the role because he was filming Beverly Hills Cop at the same time. If Murphy had been in the role, the Zedmore character would have been much more ingrained into the plot and would have appeared earlier during the scenes at the hotel where they hunt for Slimer. But when Ernie Hudson took over, it was decided that they should push them back later because it stressed that the Ghostbusters couldn't expand right away and that they were struggling at first. Eddie Murphy's choice to make Beverly Hills Cop turned out to be a good one. It ended up outgrossing Ghostbusters in the end. Sigourney Weaver played Dana Barrett. Rick Moranis played Lewis Tully. The Lewis Tully character was originally conceived as a much more conservative business type and was going to be played by John Candy. But John Candy wanted to take the character in a different direction. He wanted the character to have a German accent and a pair of schnauzers. Everyone behind the scenes was scratching their head and thought that it was completely inappropriate for the role. But John Candy believed in what he was doing and said... That's the way I want to do it. They said no thank you, and he passed. The role then went to Rick Moranis. Candy and Moranis were both veterans of SCTV, a great television show, along with Harold Rimus. Annie Potts played Janine Melnitz, though originally that role was offered to Sandra Bernhardt, which would have been interesting casting, but Bernhardt turned it down. Gozer, the Gozerian, was played by Yugoslav model Slavica Jovan. Originally... Gozer was going to appear in the form of Ivo Shandor, the architect of Dana Barrett's building in the film, when they talk about this is crazy architecture because either the person is a genius or a madman or both sort of thing. And he would have been this slender, sort of unremarkable person. And he would have been played by Paul Rubens. But Rubens passed, and they cast Jovan on it. Rounding out the cast, you had William Atherton as Walter Peck and... David Margulis as Mayor Lenny. We're the Ghostbusters. I'm Spencer. He's Tracy. I'm Kong. We're the Ghostbusters. We're clever, courageous, and strong. Your sleep has been haunted with whispers and rattlings. Your blood has been curdled. We know what to do. Your skin has the creepies. I wonder what's happening. You're safe in our hands. We will take care of you. We're the Ghostbusters. Spirits and 
you're hiding out there. We know what you're up to. We're ready for anything. We're bold and we're fearless and never afraid. We're always prepared. We're right there with every call. With us on the job, trouble soon fade. The Ghostbusters do it again. Now, when they started filming the movie, they found out that a television show had been produced in 1975 by Filmation for CBS called The Ghostbusters, and it starred Larry Storch and Forrest Tucker. Columbia Pictures tried to come up with a list of alternative names in case the rights couldn't be secured. During the filming of The Final Battle, the extras in it were all chanting Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters, and the producers loved it so much that they decided to insist that the studio buy the rights which probably was a really good call. Or we'd be stuck with something like Ghost Maulers or Ghost Grabbers. We're the ghost guys. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the plot of the movie, some interesting information about it. If you haven't seen Ghostbusters, you might want to pause the podcast and watch it and then come back. But I'm pretty sure if you're listening to this podcast, you've probably seen Ghostbusters a few dozen times. The movie starts off and you meet these group of scientists, Peter Venkman, Raymond Stance, and Egon Spengler, and... Their science is questionable, especially Venkman's, because they deal with the paranormal. Right up front, we are told that ghosts are real, even though everybody else doesn't believe it, because they go to the New York Public Library where there's a ghost of a librarian. Pretty scary one, although there was an even more ferocious version of that librarian that they used in the film, but it was too scary and rejected, but would be recycled in another Columbia Pictures film released a year later, Fright Night. See if you can spot it next time you watch Fright Night. So the Ghostbusters go out on this mission. When they come back, they find out they've lost all their funding. And now they need to figure out what to do. Of course, instead of getting other jobs, they decide to start a paranormal exterminator service called Ghostbusters. They move into a firehouse, and they get an old sort of ambulance that they call the Ectomobile. A fun fact about the Ectomobile, it was originally painted black until it was pointed out that most of the driving in the movie would be at night, and the car would be more difficult to see. So it was repainted white, which I think made it look more like a service vehicle. So as I said, the Ghostbusters moved into a firehouse and turned it into ghost hunting headquarters. The firehouses used in the movie are actually two different firehouses that are in two different cities. The exterior is in New York, and the interior is in downtown Los Angeles. The L.A. location is very popular with filmmakers and has been used in a bunch of movies. So the Ghostbusters get off to a slow start, and they're just about to run under money when they're called by an upscale hotel to investigate a haunting. At the hotel, chaos ensues, but they capture their first ghost, and they deposit him in a containment unit. So we see the very basics of ghostbusting right there in the first ghost capture and containment. Though it's never referred to in the script, that green ghost the guys bust in the hotel was called Onion Head by the crew because it had this horrible smell. We're never aware of that in the movie. But there's a scene where this ghost haunts two newlyweds that was cut, and that characteristic of the ghost is illustrated at that point. Later on, when the animated series would come up and they needed to come up with a name for the ghost, they named him Slimer. On the set, Dan Aykroyd referred to Slimer as the ghost of John Belushi because of his mannerisms. So ghostbusting takes off from there and paranormal activity in the city is skyrocketing. They get to hire a fourth member, Winston Zedmore. It's at this point that the Ghostbusters are hired by a woman named Dana Barrett who lives at 55 Central Park West. 
and is haunted by a demonic spirit named Zul, who turns out to be a demigod worshipped in 6000 BC as a servant to Gozer the Gozerian, who's a Sumerian god. The apartment building that Dana lives in actually exists at 55 Central Park West in New York City, but the building is only 20 stories high. So for the film, matte paintings and models were used to make the building look bigger and have more floors. The top of the building is modeled after the top of the Continental Life Building in St. Louis, Missouri. Venkman, who finds Dana attractive, takes a particular interest in the case. At the same time, we are introduced to Louis Tully, who is a socially inept neighbor who is vying for Dana's affection as well. While this is all going on, Dana is possessed by Zul, and while possessed, declares herself the gatekeeper. Louis also is possessed by a similar demon called Vins Clortho who is the Keymaster. Both demons begin to speak of the coming of a destructive Gozer, and the Ghostbusters decide it would be prudent to keep them separated. However, the Ghostbusters' actions have attracted the attention of skeptics like Walter Peck of the Environmental Protection Agency, who arrests the team and orders their ghost containment grid shut down. When they do this, it unleashes all the ghosts they had captured into New York City. At this point, Lewis escapes from the Ghostbusters and makes his way to Dana's apartment. And when the gatekeeper and the keymaster get together, things get out of control. The Ghostbusters are arrested, but they are looking into her building and find out that it is a portal for the destruction of the world. Sadly, they're unable to stop Dana and Vince from opening this portal, but they do convince the mayor of New York that they need to be freed to go stop all this destruction. They get there and... They are told that they can pick the means of their own destruction, and they unleash the giant Stay Puff Marshmallow Man upon the world. Originally, the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man was supposed to come out of the water right next to the Statue of Liberty, so you could get a contrast of the size between the two. But it turned out that scene was way too hard to shoot. They shoot at the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man and light him on fire, but this only seems to make him angry, and he continues his advance toward the building. The Ghostbusters realize that they really only have one thing to do and decide to risk their own lives to try to save the world by crossing the streams and closing the dimensional portal that Gozer came through. They do this, it destroys the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, and they survive. It also turns out that Dana and Lewis survive, and everyone lives happily ever after. Ghosts. Hello, Ghostbusters. They're real. You do? They're mean. You have? They're here. Ghostbusters. Hey, anybody see a ghost? They catch the ghost that won't stay dead. They're armed. They're dangerous. Try to imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously and every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light. All right, that's bad. Okay. All right, important safety tip. Thanks, Egon. They're professionals. Oh. I'm the chairman of the largest paranormal removal company in America. Did you see it? They're all that stand between you and the end of the world. 
This city is headed for a disaster of biblical proportion. Real wrath of God type stuff. Exactly. Fire and brimstone coming down from the sky. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Your girlfriend lives in the corner penthouse of Spook Central. You want this body? Is this a trick question? <laughs> Stick. Hold. Heat him up. Smoke. Make him hard. Ready. Ghostbusters. Starring Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Sigourney Weaver, Harold Ramis, Rick Moranis. Coming to save the world this summer. Ghostbusters. We came, we saw, we kicked it. There's a lot of deleted scenes in Ghostbusters. Some of them were restored, and some of them can be seen in promos or as extras on releases that have happened. There's several extra sequences where Venkman, Stans, and Spengler are thrown off campus. There's a whole romance between Janine and Egon that were cut. The special edition DVD features a deleted scene of Janine giving Egon a coin for luck before he goes off with the other Ghostbusters to fight Gozer. That relationship would be explored further in the Ghostbusters animated series. There's the Slimer getting discovered by the two newlyweds scene at the hotel at the beginning that was cut. There's a scene where a policeman tries to ticket the Ectomobile, but the Ectomobile won't let him. There's a scene where Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd are playing two bums, and Bill Murray's bum sounds a lot like his character from Caddyshack. I'd love to see that. There's a scene where Ray and Winston are inspecting Fort Detmering, and Ray dresses up as an old general and falls asleep. He awakes to see a female ghost hovering above his bed. This part was kept in a montage in the middle of the film, sort of as a dream sequence. So a lot of stuff was left on the cutting room floor, and a lot of that stuff has never been fully released or restored in the film, although in the novelizations of the movie, a lot of those scenes do appear. Ghostbusters has a heck of a following today, but the reviews for it, when it was released, were kind of mixed. Roger Ebert gave it three and a half stars out of four, and said the movie is an exception to the general rule that big special effects can wreck a comedy. Rarely has a movie this expensive provided so many quotable lines. But other people didn't like it. Reviewer Paul Kale had problems with the chemistry between the three lead actors, saying that Murray is the film's comic mechanism, but nobody else has much in the way of material, and since there's almost no give and take among the three men, Murray's lines fall on dead air. I don't know what movie he was watching, but... I think a lot of people would disagree with them, and they did. The movie was released on June 8, 1984, in 1,339 theaters and grossed $13.6 million on its opening weekend, and $23 million in its first week, which was a studio record at the time. It helped that there was publicity, especially in Manhattan at the time, where they would put up signs that had the No Ghosts logo, but with nothing else. And they also drove the Ectomobile around the streets of Manhattan. So there was buzz in the news, and people were talking about it. The film was number one at the box office for five consecutive weeks, and grossed $99.8 million in that time. After seven weeks at number one, it finally fell to second place by Purple Rain. But at that time, it had grossed $142.6 million dollars and was second only to Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom as the year's top moneymaker. In the middle of the film's initial release to keep interest going, 
and I don't know if you remember this, Ivan Reitman had a trailer run, which was basically the commercial the Ghostbusters used in the movie, but with the 555 number replaced with a 1-800 number, which allowed people to call. And they got a recorded message with Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd. They got 1,000 calls an hour, 24 hours a day, for six weeks after that. Are you troubled by strange noises in the middle of the night? Do you experience feelings of dread in your basement or attic? Have you or any of your family ever seen a spook, specter, or ghost? If the answer is yes, then don't wait another minute. Pick up your phone and call the professionals. Go Ghostbusters! Our courteous and efficient staff is on call 24 hours a day to serve all your supernatural elimination needs. We're ready to believe you! The Ghostbusters would go up and down for the next couple of weeks, often regaining the number one spot. It would go on to gross $229.2 million at the box office, making it the second highest grossing film of 1984, behind only Beverly Hills Cop. Good call, Eddie. At the time, this made it one of the highest grossing films of all time. A re-release in 85 gave the film a total gross of $238.6 million, surpassing Beverly Hills Cop and making Ghostbusters the most successful comedy of the 80s, and it would remain so until the release of Home Alone in 1990. The music of Ghostbusters was very important to me. I would watch that music video whenever it came on MTV, and would listen to my single of the theme song over and over and over again. The film's score was composed by Elmer Bernstein, and although people really seem to like the Ghostbusters music, what everybody does remember is the theme song. You might be surprised to know that Ray Parker Jr., who wrote that theme song, wasn't the first one approached to do it. Originally, Huey Lewis and the News turned down an offer to write and record the theme song for Ghostbusters, and Lindsey Buckingham, who had written the theme song for Vacation, also turned it down. He said he didn't want to get into the rut of being asked to write movie themes. So Ray Parker Jr. was approached to write it couldn't come up with anything and he said in an interview that it was four in the morning and he was watching tv trying to create this song when he saw a commercial for a drain company that reminded him of the scene from the film and he thought well then i'll make it more like a pitch and he came up with the popular line who you gonna call the song was a number one hit for three weeks and the song earned parker an academy award nomination for best original song in the autumn of 84 huey lewis sued ray parker jr for plagiarism claiming that parker stole the medley from his 83 song i want a new drug for the ghostbusters theme the two musicians settled out of court it was reported in 2001 that lewis allegedly breached an agreement not to mention the original suit while doing his vh1s behind the music so i don't know what happened after that what do you think do you think these are too similar The music video played 
like crazy on MTV. It was directed by Reitman, and the video integrated footage of the film intercut with humorous performances by Parker. The film also featured cameo appearances by people who weren't in the movie at all. They would be used in the call and response chorus of Who You Gonna Call? Ghostbusters. Celebrities included in that were Irene Cara, John Candy, Chevy Chase, Melissa Gilbert, Jeffrey Tambor, Al Franken, Danny DeVito, Peter Falk, and Terry Garr, plus several others. The video ends with footage of the four main Ghostbusters acting in costume and character, dancing in Times Square behind Parker. Hilarious. So outside of the Cineplex, the Ghostbusters enjoyed continued success. There have been several novelizations of the movie. The first one, which came out around the same time of the movie, was written by Larry Milne and was 191 pages long. It has a couple of extra scenes in it. Then a second novelization, written by Richard Muller, was released in 85, and it had 65 more pages in it. And that had more scenes that were not in the finished version of the film. A larger book was also released by Hippo Books, that had a lot more publicity shots and stills from the movie, but it was meant more as a kid's book. Then in 2004, another book called Ghostbusters The Return by Sholly Fish was released by iBooks. Now I'm talking about books, but what you're thinking is all those Ghostbusters video games. And the Ghostbusters have had many video games, and I could probably do a whole podcast on just these games, and maybe I will one day. Well, I'll just go through some of these titles. In 84, you had a version of Ghostbusters released for the Atari 800, the Commodore 64, the MSX, the ZX Spectrum, or the ZX Spectrum, as some might say, and a version for the NES. In 85, you had an Atari 2600 version and an Apple II version. In 87, the real Ghostbusters released an arcade game that was really great by Data East. In 87, there was a Sega Master System game. Two years later, in 89, that real Ghostbusters was released for the Commodore 64, the Amiga, the ZX Spectrum, and the Atari ST. When Ghostbusters 2 came around, there was an Amiga version, a Commodore 64 version, a PC version, a ZX Spectrum version, and an Atari 2600 version, which I've always thought was very interesting, and I've played the ROM version of this game. Activision made the game in 1989 for the Atari 2600, but Atari 2600 was 12 years old at this point, and Activision kind of knew that nobody was ever going to play it, so they never released the game. The British game company Salu ended up releasing the game in Europe under their name in 92, despite the fact that Atari had already long ago ended their support for the system. It's a difficult game to get your hands on, and it hasn't appeared in any anthologies because of rights disputes. In 1990, a Ghostbusters game was released for the Sega Genesis. In that same year, there was an NES and Game Boy version of Ghostbusters 2 released. In 93, the real Ghostbusters was released on the Game Boy. 
and there was a long silence in Ghostbuster gaming before 2009 when Ghostbusters the video game was released, and that's a very realistic Ghostbusters game. Pretty amazing. The film was licensed by Universal Studios Florida as the Ghostbusters Spooktacular, which was a special effects show. The show was one of the original attractions at the park when it opened in 1990, but it closed in 1997. They would continue to use characters from the Ghostbusters up until 2005, when Universal failed to renew the rights for the theme park use. There have been a couple of good Ghostbusters toys. Some standouts include NECA released a 2004 line of action figures based on the first movie. They didn't include any of the Ghostbusters themselves because Bill Murray refused the rights to his facial likeness. So the figures they released were actually of the ghosts in the movie, which I still think is very cool. Ertl would release a die-cast model of the Ectomobile, and in 2009, Mattel released a series of... 12-inch and 6-inch figures based on the film to coincide with the film's 25th anniversary release. In 1986, the real Ghostbusters appeared on American television, was produced by Columbia Pictures, Deke Entertainment, and Coca-Cola. The title of the real, the real Ghostbusters was added because of a dispute with Filmation and its Ghostbuster properties. They created a Ghostbusters animated series that was, to me, pretty horrible. The real Ghostbusters, in animated form, continued the adventures of the guys. It's a great series. It's comical, but it often has some really dark tones that are a lot of fun to watch. In 1997, a sequel cartoon entitled Extreme Ghostbusters was created by Columbia TriStar Television and Adelaide Productions. It ran for 40 episodes until its conclusion in December of 97. The series tracks a whole new class of Ghostbusters who are being mentored by Egon, who is a bit older and has a horrible ponytail. The real Ghostbusters animated series would be spun off into two comic books of the same name, which were published by Marvel UK and Now Comics. The Marvel UK version was a magazine-sized comic for 193 issues and had four annuals. Now Comics began their series in August of 88 and ran for two volumes with two specials. In 1987, Harvey Comics sued Columbia Pictures for $50 million, I remember this lawsuit, claiming that the Ghostbusters logo was too reminiscent of Fatso from the Casper the Friendly Ghost series. The court ruled in Columbia's favor because Harvey's failure to renew the copyrights on early Casper stories and because there's only so many ways you could draw a ghost. Okay, who brought the dog? Something you don't see every day. The Busters are back. What are you doing? We thought you were someone else. He slimed me. That's great. Let's get slimed one more time. Ghostbusters, the number one comedy of all time, returns. Rated PG. Ghostbusters has been out on just about every medium. The original Laserdisc release, though, was problematic because it pumped up the light levels so much that you actually saw the matte lines on the film, which really bothered the director Ivan Reitman. That was all fixed when the DVD version of the movie was released. In 2009, a Blu-ray version of Ghostbusters was released to coincide with the film's 25th anniversary. And Techophiles take note, Ghostbusters was the first film ever officially released on a USB flash drive. stroke of midnight on New Year's Eve of the last decade of the 20th century 
America's largest city is about to pay for the nastiness of its inhabitants. When that day comes, when the slime starts to rise, the Titanic just arrived. When ghosts start arriving by the boatload, we gotta find the guys. There's only one thing to do. Sometimes weird things happen. Someone has to deal with it. And who are you gonna call? Right, suck in the guts, guys, with the Ghostbusters. The superstars of the supernatural are back to nuke the spooks. Be fast and baby slow. Make some time. Don't put any of those old cheap moves on me. No, no, no. It's different. I have all new cheap moves. Raise your spirits. If we don't do something by midnight, you will be remembered in history as the man who let New York get sucked down into the tenth level of hell. And kick some slime. Looks like a giant jello mold. I hate jello. Oh, come on. There's always room for jello. Happy New Year! Close them. Ghostbusters 2. You're short, your belly button sticks out too far, and you're a terrible burden on your poor mother. Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Sigourney Weaver, Harold Ramis, Rick Moranis, and Ernie Hudson in an Ivan Reitman film. Ghostbusters 2. We're the best, we're the beautiful, we're the only Ghostbusters. Yeah. We're back! Who you gonna call? In 1989, fans got what they wanted in a sequel. Although, maybe they shouldn't have been asking for it. Ghostbusters 2 was produced and directed by Reitman, and it follows the further adventures of the Ghostbusters. It was originally supposed to be called Ghostbusters 2, The River of Slime, but they cut the title down to just Ghostbusters 2. The sequel was popular, especially the first week, and at the time had the biggest three-day opening in history of 29472000 a record that was broke one week later by Batman, which made over $40 million. The film had mixed reviews, and it is not as loved by fans as the original. So Ghostbusters fans, where are we now? We had a great video game. But in the 90s, Aykroyd wrote a script for a potential third Ghostbusters. This concept reportedly would have the characters transported to an alternate version of Manhattan called Manhelton, which was a sort of hellish version of Manhattan. Aykroyd brought it to the studio, who was very interested, but none of the other principal actors were. So this script has been criticized on the internet and potential actors to replace members have been floated around for years. In a 2009 interview, Rimus said that the project had stalled due to lack of interest and motivation. In 2009, it looked like the movie was getting traction and there was talk that it could have a 2011 release with Bill Murray on board. So I have no idea where we are with these Ghostbusters. In March of 2010, Bill Murray appeared on The Late Show with David Letterman, and he talked about his return to Ghostbusters 3 and said that I'd only do it if my character was killed off in the first reel. Okay, so maybe the film is going. Maybe Bill Murray will appear in it. 
Maybe he'll be killed in the first reel and we'll have Ghost Bill Murray guiding the Ghostbusters. Who knows? And when you hear Murray, you don't know what to think. 25 years ago or so, Ghostbusters. Has it been 25 years ago? I don't know, Dave. Wow. Now, and there was a Ghostbusters 2, wasn't there? Technically, yes. Yeah, yeah. Now, is, is, and I keep hearing talk about a Ghostbusters 3, and, but you... It's a nightmare. Yeah, this is my nightmare. Really? Now, will you be in Ghostbusters 3? I, I told them if they killed me off in the first reel, I'd do it. Right. So now they've figured out a way to kill me off in the oh. first reel. But I don't think... You know, it's just crazy talk. It's just... Well, that'd be a just, huge hit. It's these with the people you? that are up all night, you yeah. know? That are talking this. Now, do you do you uh, no? And you did the video game. The video game. The video game was kind of wildly fun. successful. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah. Let's say that you're at a recording studio here in you, town. I don't know where you're going with this. Thing. <laughs> and and you spent the entire day doing the lines for the Ghostbusters video game. And so now you're on your way home and you're oh, feeling. Oh, did I tell you this one? Okay, you're it's feeling pretty, pretty good, good anyway. Yeah. So all right. I uh, wish so, I had, get me some pills. All right, all right. I was just afraid. <laughs> I was just afraid. Okay, so. <clears throat> Okay, so I was doing this recording, and I was working on a movie at the same time, so I was going into Manhattan and working on the weekends doing all this recording. I got really back into the Ghostbusters thing, and it was fun being Dr. Peter Venkman, and I was laughing, and I was improvising. It was just like being on the movie. It was like a lot of fun. And I go out on the street, and it's like, it's, you know, Manhattan on a Sunday morning around 9 o'clock, and I start singing the dang Ghostbusters mm -hmm. song. And, and some couples walk on the street, and they look at me like, Get over it, pal. Get over it. If Ghostbusters shows up in the theaters, I'll probably see it. The original is probably the most enjoyable horror sci-fi comedy ever made, and will always have a place in my heart. And no matter how many bad sequels they make, remember, we always have the original. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, drop by the website at www.retroist.com. You can follow me on Twitter and Facebook. I'm at twitter.com slash retroist and facebook.com slash retroist. Thanks to Peachy, who does the music that you hear in the retroist. In addition to being the editor at the game section of the retroist, Peachy is also a very talented maker of music. If you're interested in Peachy's music, you can email him at peachy at retroist.com. Thanks to Derek at lunch bag art for the great art that you see at the very beginning of the retroist if you want to see more of derek's work you could drop by his website at lunchbagart.tumblr.com the retroist has a forum and we're always looking to pick up new people to discuss retro stuff so if you want to discuss something old or if you have a question about something why not drop by the retroist forum at www.retroist.com forum thanks for listening to the show and i hope you have a great weekend is haunted by memories that refuse to die.
I can't get away from a vision that brings Intimate glimpses of intimate things A voice in my heart like a tart singer sings I wonder who's kissing her now The house is haunted by the echo of your favorite song The place is cluttered up with roses that have lived too long Much too long The ceiling is white But the shadows are black A ghost in my heart says she'll never come back The house is haunted by the echo of your last goodbye Now there's something you don't see every day. This has been a Retro's production. Goodbye.